The New Testament reading for today is Acts 13, 13 through 42, and then we will go to Psalm 2, which is the sermon text for today. So let us begin with the reading of God's most holy word in Acts 13, verse 13. I've, I've selected this text because Psalm 2 is quoted in this text, and I'm reading this text in its entirety. Uh, this whole section, 13 through 42, because I want you to pay special attention to the way that the Apostle Paul proclaimed the gospel. And if you were to read the book of Acts carefully and you were to ask the question, how did the early church preach the gospel? You would see that uh, they preach it just like this. Uh, they preach it from the Old Testament scriptures and they show that Christ is the Messiah, the anointed one of God from the Old Testament Scriptures. So hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. And after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm he led them out of it. And for about forty years he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about four hundred and fifty years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of the salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning Him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that He raised Him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore He says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. 
But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. Let us go now to Psalm chapter 2. This is one of the Psalms that Paul quoted as he proclaimed the gospel to the Jews in that day. Psalm 2. There we read, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Psalm 2 is a very important psalm. Of course all of the psalms are important. In fact all of scripture is important. You know this to be true. But I think you would agree with me that there are some passages of scripture that are very central to the overarching Message of Scripture, and Psalm 2 is one of those passages. It's a very important psalm. Psalm 2 plays a very important role in the Psalter. There is a reason why it has been placed in this second position. Last Sunday I stated that Psalm 1 is law and Psalm 2 is gospel. What does the law say except this? Do this and you shall live. This is what the law says to us. But the gospel says, though it is true that you have violated God's law and thought, word, and deed, and therefore stand guilty before God, you may live by trusting in the work that has been accomplished for you by another, namely Jesus the Christ. So there is law and there is gospel. The gospel says, not do this and you shall live, but rather live because of what has been done for you. Repent and believe upon the Savior. Psalm 1 is law. But Psalm 2 is gospel. They are the twin pillars that we must walk in between in order to enter into the Psalms. Law and gospel. On the left and on the right. But how specifically does Psalm 2 proclaim the good news of salvation through faith in the Christ? How does it do it? How does it proclaim the good news of salvation through faith in the Lord's anointed? Well, the answer is this. It proclaims the gospel 
by amplifying the promises of the gospel that are found within the terms of the Davidic covenant. And I want you to stick with me here. I think this is very important for us to recognize if we wish to understand and fully appreciate Psalm 2. You know that God always relates to man by way of covenant, or at least you should know that. Does God relate to us? Yes, He does. Uh, what a blessing it is that He would relate to us. You know, He is so high and exalted and we are so lowly, but He always has determined to reveal Himself to us and to relate to His creatures. How does He do it? Always by way of covenant. A covenant is simply an agreement wherein two parties say, this is the nature of our relationship. Here is what you should expect from me and here is what I expect from you. Marriage is a covenant, isn't it? In marriage, two people do say, here is the nature of our relationship. We are joined together now. Here is what you should expect from me, and here is what I expect to you. And God has always related to His people by establishing covenants with them. A covenant was made with Adam in the garden before sin entered into the world. We know that Adam broke that covenant, but God promised to send a Savior and covenants were also made with Abraham, Moses, and David. Yes, I do realize that I've skipped the covenant that was made with all of creation in the days of Noah, but it is a bit outside the scope of this sermon. But the covenants made with Abraham, Moses, and David, they were all related to one another. They were different covenants, each one of them unique, but they were all related. They all contained, and in some way advanced, in their own unique way, the promises concerning a coming Savior, that promise which was made originally in the presence of Adam, as recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It is helpful to think of that first promise of the gospel as a seed. In the days of Abraham, that seed sprouted. In the days of Moses, it grew. And in the days of David, it grew even more so. With the addition of each of these covenants, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, together they are called the Old Covenant, uh, the promise of the gospel that was first given to Adam, that God would send a Savior, uh, that promise grew stronger and stronger. It grew ever more clear. These covenants are all related for they carry and advance this promise. And they are related because they all find their fulfillment in the finished work of Jesus Christ in the inauguration of the new covenant through His blood. So they are all distinct, they are all unique, but they are related to one another in this way. They contain the promise of the gospel. And with that broad overview out of that way, I want for you to think specifically about the covenant that God transacted with King David. The terms of that covenant are recorded for us in 2 Samuel 7. And I want for you to listen very carefully to the promises and the stipulations of God's covenant with King David. God spoke these words to David through Nathan the prophet. I took you from the pasture, God says, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers. I will rise up your offspring after you, 
who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there is a lot going on in this covenant. There are multiple dimensions to it. God makes unconditional promises to David concerning an everlasting kingdom, but there are also terms to be kept. When David's offspring are disobedient, they will be disciplined, we are told. Also, some things that are said here pertain uniquely to David as king, David the individual, and other things pertain to the kings that would rule Israel after him. But we know that some things that are said here in this covenant could find their fulfillment only in the King, the Christ, the Anointed One of God. And the New Testament makes it very clear that the promises of this covenant, which God transacted with King David, did find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus the Christ, the Son of Abraham, the Son of David, the Son of God. To see this, you have to open up to the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, and read verse 1. Jesus, the Christ, was the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the fulfillment of these promises that were made to David so very long before the birth of Christ. Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, whose throne will remain forever, whose kingdom will never come to an end. The Davidic covenant, as I have said, is complex, is complex. But it is very, very important to the story of redemption. It is really about Jesus and the eternal heavenly kingdom, which is His now and will be for all eternity. So, what does this have to do with Psalm 2? Are you wondering that? What does this have to do with the sermon text for today? And I am saying to you here, by mentioning all of this... That Psalm 2 makes sense only when interpreted in the light of the covenant that God transacted with David. Who wrote Psalm 2? King David did. King David wrote Psalm 2. The same David who received this promise from God. This same David whom God entered into covenant with. If, If you read that Acts 13 passage carefully, the one that... I read at the start of the sermon, you will notice that verses 33 through 35 say that the second psalm was written by David. And when did he write it? It seems clear to me that he wrote it after God established his covenant with him through Nathan the prophet. For this psalm is based upon the terms of of that covenant. This psalm amplifies the covenant that was made with him. So back to my question, how does Psalm 2 preach the gospel? How does Psalm 2 preach? deliver good news. It delivers good news by urging all people to be found in the Messiah that God would in due time send in the line of David. A Messiah would come. In the line of David, a king would come. And all people must be found in Him if they hope to stand before God right. All people must be found in Him if they wish to stand in the judgment. They must take refuge in Him 
if they wish to escape the wrath of God, which He Himself will administer at the final judgment. So, Psalm 2 is very important. It plays a very special role in the Psalter. It proclaims the Gospel from the start, and it does also fix our minds upon the promise of God regarding His anointed King and His everlasting Kingdom. I think it signals to us that this Psalter, this collection of Psalms, is going to be about God's King and God's Kingdom. The Gospel is here from uh, the very beginning. I think you probably remember what I said regarding the five books of the Psalter and their themes, and I will not repeat myself here. But the themes all have to do with God's King and Kingdom, from confrontation to communication to devastation to maturation to consummation. I'm moving very quickly here, hoping that you will reflect on all of this and connect the dots. Psalm 2 is important to the Psalter, and it is important also to the promise of the Gospel in the Old Testament. It amplifies it. And it is no wonder, therefore, that this psalm is quoted or alluded to very frequently in the New Testament. And the New Testament does clearly teach that this psalm is about Jesus the Christ, who is the Anointed One of Psalm 2-2. Who is He? Who is the King that God has set on Zion, His holy hill? Is it David? Or is it David's son, Solomon? Well, in a sense, yes. David is the anointed one of God, and so too Solomon would be anointed, and all of the other kings that would descend from them. But, ultimately, the anointed one of God, the king, is Jesus the Christ. The New Testament makes this so very clear. And in fact, it is clear from the immediate context of this psalm itself. This is no ordinary king. This is no king of Israel, old covenant Israel. This is the anointed one of God, the king of kings, the Messiah. That is who is being referenced here. Only Christ could fulfill what is said here in this psalm. And indeed the Christ, He has come. He's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. So, with all of that as an introduction, let us rather quickly consider this psalm piece by piece. Psalm 2 is neatly divided into four sections. In verses 1-3, through three, the rebelliousness of the nations and their kings is described to us. In verses 4 through 6, God's heavenly response is described. What does God do in response to the rebels? In verses 7 through 9, we hear the voice of the Lord's anointed. It is actually David who speaks in the first person. Let me tell you about this, he says. Verses 7 through 9. And then finally, in verses 10 through 12, the kings of the earth are summoned to pay homage to the Son and to take refuge in him. And so that is an overview of the psalm. Let's get to it now. In verse 1 we encounter a question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so there are three parties mentioned here. There are the nations of the earth, there is God and there is His anointed one. The nations consist of people and their rulers. You need to picture it in your, in your minds. Picture the nations of the earth. All of the peoples of the earth are grouped into nations with rulers at the head. And what are these nations doing? We are to imagine that they are, they are raging. 
They are in an uproar. They are filled with commotion. The people are continuously plotting. This means that they are grumbling, they are groaning, they are murmuring to one another. They are scheming. But we are told that they plot in vain. This means that all of their raging and plotting is really empty. It will accomplish nothing in the end. And what do the kings and rulers do? They do the same as the people. They too rage. Verse 2, the kings of the earth set themselves. This means that they have this posture of rebellion. We were to picture the kings of the earth standing in a rebellious way. And they are also plotting. The text says the rulers take counsel together. So they come together to, to plot. And who are they plotting against? Not one another in this instance. That also does happen, doesn't it? But here in Psalm 2 we read that they are plotting together against the Lord and against His anointed. So the picture is not of one nation rising up against another nation, but of the nations, all of them, rising up against the Lord. And not only do they rage and plot against God, but also against His anointed. Who is this anointed one? It may refer to David, for David was indeed anointed as king of Israel, and it may indeed refer to any one of the kings who would come after him, for they too were anointed as kings of Israel. But really we are not left to wonder who this anointed one is, for the New Testament tells us that he is Jesus. I'd actually like for you to turn with me to Acts chapter 4 and to verse 23. Acts 4, 23. And as you turn there, we are going to look for an answer to this question. Who is this anointed one against whom the nations rage? Who are they raging against? Who is the anointed one of Psalm 2? In Acts 4.23, we read, When they, that is the apostles Peter and John, were released, that is from custody to the Jewish leaders... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said... So this is the congregation assembled. This was their response to the the trial, to the persecution that they were enduring now. Here is what they said. Sovereign Lord. And I want you to remember that when we return to Psalm 2. They approach God and they refer to Him as Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote our passage in Psalm 2 saying, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. Does that sound familiar? It is our, it is our passage. And then they say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. What an important passage here in Acts chapter 4. 
Here we are simply asking the question, who is the anointed one of Psalm 2? The one against whom the nations rage. Well, according to the New Testament Scriptures, Jesus is the anointed one. Or we might say, Jesus is the Messiah. For that is what the Hebrew word translated as anointed one here is, Messiah. Or we might also say that Jesus is the Christ. That is simply the the Greek term for Messiah or anointed one. It, It is Jesus. And by the way, you probably have noticed that I rarely refer to Jesus as Jesus Christ. Have you ever noticed that? When I speak of Jesus and I use the word Christ, rarely do I say Jesus Christ. Instead, I call Him Jesus the Christ. Why do I do that? It's to combat the misnomer that Christ is the last name of Jesus. It is not. Christ is His title. He is Jesus the Anointed One. He is Jesus the Messiah. He is Jesus the Christ. So what is described in Psalm 2 is ultimately not the nation's rebellion against God and David or any other king of Israel, but the nation's rebellion against God and His Messiah, of which David and the other kings of Israel were a type. So we might ask, when did this happen? Uh, This thing that the psalmist David is describing here, the nations raging and plotting a vain thing against the Lord and His anointed. When did this happen? When did the nations rage and rebel against the Lord and His anointed? Well, we know that it happened when the unbelieving Jews conspired with the Romans to murder Jesus the Christ by hanging Him on the cross. That is what Acts 4.27 says. They they say this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. After citing that psalm, uh, they do say that, For truly in the city there were gathered together against God's holy servant Jesus, whom God anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Think about that for a moment. Uh, They're saying, listen, we we know Psalm 2 and we saw it happen. This is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 2. We saw it. The, The Jews and the Gentiles, the nations, gathered together. They plotted against the Lord's anointed in a most literal and direct way. They conspired together. They raged against Him. They hung Him on the tree. So here is the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 2. Just most blatantly fulfilled here in that instance. So it certainly applied, was fulfilled rather, at the crucifixion of Christ. But we must also confess that it happened long before then. In fact, the nations have been living in rebellion against God and His Messiah ever since the first promise of the Gospel was given to Adam and Eve. Think about it. This is the story of of, of our redemption. This is the story of Scripture. Ever since man fell into sin and God promised to send a Savior that would crush the head of the serpent, the nations have raged against the Lord and against His anointed. They have raged against God and against His plan of salvation, in other words. Think of how Cain murdered Abel. Think of it, brothers and sisters. Cain murdered his brother Abel. What was that about except for the unrighteous line rising up against the righteous line to try to snuff out God's plan for redemption? Cain was not a nation then. He was only an individual at that point. But he represents the nations, does he not? He conspired against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. He he raged against the Lord and against the Lord's anointed. And he tried to snuff out God's plan by murdering his brother. But God raised up another. 
in his place, so that the righteous line might be preserved. Think of the story of the Tower of Babel. What is that about? Is that story meant to tell us how all of these different languages came to be? No, it's the peoples of the earth trying to be gods themselves. They're trying to cast off God's bonds to, to say, we will go our own way. We will do it our own selves. And God brings confusion to them. But He, he sets apart of people so as to accomplish His purposes of redemption. Think about Israel's bondage in Egypt and the murdering of the firstborn children, the firstborn boys, and how God delivered His people from that bondage. I don't need to go further. I think you get the point. Since the fall of Adam into sin and from the first utterance of the gospel, the nations have raged, the peoples have plotted in vain, the kings of the earth have set themselves, and the rulers have taken counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What does this mean? Stated differently, in sin the peoples of the earth have always said, Let us do away with God and His Christ, for we do not wish to be ruled by them. No, we would rather rule ourselves. And then I might ask you the question, is this not what Adam and Eve said when they ate the forbidden fruit? They did not say it with their mouths, but this is what they said with their actions. Instead of submitting to God's law, they decided to go their own way and to be a law unto themselves. Instead of agreeing with God concerning good and evil, they made their own determination. When they ate of that forbidden tree, they said, in essence, let us burst these bonds apart and cast away these cords from us. For they did not see that God's law was, in fact, good. This description of the nations raging and rebelling against God and His anointed is timeless. Yes, it was fulfilled most literally and directly in the days of Jesus when the Jews and the Gentiles hung Him on the cross. But this description here is timeless. The nations have always raged against God and His anointed, and they will continue to do so until Christ returns to judge and to make all things new. This is going to continue to be our experience here on earth. As God's people, we will look about us, and what will we see? The nations will rage. This is what Jesus taught in Matthew 24, 3-14. You can turn to that yourself sometime to see it. In this world there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. The people of God are going to experience persecution up until the very last day. But verses 1-3 through three of this psalm, as I have said, were fulfilled in a most direct way when the unbelieving Jews conspired with the Romans to put Jesus the Christ to death. I think it would be helpful for you to, to read Psalm chapter 2 verses 1-3 through three, and then open up the Gospel of John and read chapters 18 and following to see the connection. Uh, there in John 18 and following we have detail concerning the conspiring of the Jews and the Gentiles together and all that they did in order to put Christ on the cross. We must make the connection here. Before we move on to the second portion of this psalm, I'd like to make a connection between the first three verses of Psalm 2 and Psalm 1, which we considered last week. It won't take very long. Simply consider how Psalm 1 taught that the blessed man walks in the way of life and avoids the way of death. Do you remember it there in Psalm 1? The blessed man does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor does he stand in the way of sinners, nor does he sit with scoffers. But what is his delight in? 
the law of the Lord. In other words, where does the blessed man receive counsel? From God, from the law of the Lord. But what do we see here in Psalm 2? What do we see here in Psalm 2? We see a description of all the nations of the earth, the people and their kings. And what are they doing? Are they walking in this way of life? Are they the blessed one, the blessed man described in Psalm chapter 1? No, it's actually bad news, isn't it, here in Psalm chapter 2. Blessed is the man who walks in this way. But then we turn to Psalm chapter 2, and what does the psalmist say to us there? David, he says, look at the nations. They rage, they, they plot in vain. Uh, the kings of the earth, they take counsel from God? No, they take counsel together. And they are conspiring against the Lord and against His anointed. And so there is bad news here. The nations, the people and their kings, are walking in the way of death. They are raging and plotting against the Lord and its anointed. They wish to cast off His law. They are taking counsel together. And such is the condition of the human race. That is the point, brothers and sisters. I said to you, Psalm 1 is law. Here's the way that you should go. Psalm 2 is gospel, but we have not heard it yet, have we? The gospel begins with these words, Though it is true that you have violated God's law and thought, word, and deed, and stand guilty before Him, God has provided a Savior. And so the bad news is delivered first here in Psalm chapter 2. The nations are not walking in the ways of the Lord. They are raging against the Lord and against His anointed. To bring this home, this includes you and me in our natural condition. Please understand that. This is not Christians gathering together to say, look at how wicked the nations are. And good thing I am not like that or never have been. No, to the contrary. This is how we all were prior to God's grace being bestowed upon us. Prior to Him lavishing His love upon us to draw us to faith in the Christ and to bring us to salvation. And these same corruptions that once characterized us prior to faith in Christ still remain within our own hearts so that we can say, there are times when I still rage against the Lord and seek to cast off His bonds. But God has been gracious to me and He will keep me. He will refine me. He will sanctify me to the end. So yes, Psalm 2 is gospel, but first bad news is delivered. The nations rage. In verses 1 through 3, we've considered the rebellion of the nations against God and His anointed. And in verses 4 through 6, God's response is described. What does God do? Is He disturbed? Is He shaken? Is He bothered? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him, them rather, in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. He who sits in the heavens laughs. So here is God's heavenly response. He laughs at the rebels. He laughs not because they are funny, but because they are pathetic. This is the laughter of ridicule. And understandably so. Picture it in your minds. The nations, the peoples of the earth and their kings, they are raging. They are plotting against who? Against God Himself. It, it is pathetic to think about, in fact. 
They are raging and plotting. It's God who is seated in heaven. God their maker. Do you remember how the disciples of Jesus spoke of God in that Acts 4 passage that I read just a little bit ago? I told you to remember this little part when we return to Psalm 2. They referred to God as Sovereign Lord. They had just witnessed the raging of the nations, this whole passage fulfilled in a most direct way. They themselves were now experiencing persecution. Undoubtedly, there was natural fear in their hearts concerning the persecution that was now coming upon them. And when they go to pray, when they assemble together and they go to pray, what do they say to God? Sovereign Lord. I think here they are remembering this passage. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In other words, they took comfort in this truth. Though the nations rage, though the people and their kings plot against the Lord and it is anointed, where is God? God is sovereign over heaven and earth. He is not disturbed by the tumult on earth. He is not concerned about His palace being overrun. overrun. No, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This means that He scorns and mocks them. He despises them to their faces, for they are weak and He is strong. Their raging and their plotting are in vain. It will accomplish nothing at all. It is really pathetic. It's, it, it's silly. If it were not so, so tragic, right? If it were not so devastating, we would say it, it's just almost funny to watch, you know? To see these human beings, these kings, as powerful as they seem to us. What are they before God? They're They're nothing. He holds their breath in his, in his hand. That is the perspective that we must maintain, brothers and sisters. And in verses 5 and 6, the judgment of God is described. Then He will speak to them, the rebels, in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. And what does He say? So there you are plotting, there you are rebelling. But as for me, God says, I have set, or anointed, my King on Zion, my holy hill. The word for set here means poured out. It's an interesting word. Uh, for the sake of time, I didn't go there in the manuscript. But I have set or poured out or anointed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Again, I must ask, who is this king? Who is this anointed one who has been appointed by God to judge the nations on his behalf? I suppose we may say it was David, the author of this psalm. And there is certainly some truth to that. But King David was only a prototype Never did David judge the nations. Clearly what is being described here is beyond David. This text is about David's greater son, not Solomon, or not any who would descend from him, except Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Christ. In verse 7, King David speaks in the first person, saying, I will tell of the decree. It's like he interrupts this, this psalm of his and, and says, So let me explain. Let me tell you all about this. I will tell of the decree. What decree? Well, it's the decree that was just described in verses 5 through 6. The decree of God to set His King on Zion, His holy hill. It's as if David again interrupts saying, let me explain this to you. Let me tell you about this decree of the Lord concerning His anointed. I will tell you of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, what is going on here? He says, let me explain all of this. I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, David says, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Pay careful attention here and notice three things. First of all, notice how the names used for God have been changing back and forth 
in this psalm. In verse 2, God is called the Lord. It's all capital in your English Bibles. It's the Hebrew name for Yahweh that is there behind the English word Lord. This name Yahweh communicates that God is a gracious God, a God who draws near. He is the covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Are you connecting the dots now? You know, in verse 2, it's the the covenant-making and covenant-keeping name for God that is used. And it is obviously fitting that God be called Yahweh in verses 1 through 3, where He mentions alongside, uh, where He is mentioned alongside His anointed. But in verse 4, He is called the Lord, capital L, lowercase o-r-d, and that is the Hebrew word Adonai. This name for God emphasizes His supremacy over all things and His great power. And it is fitting that God is called Adonai in verses 4-6, through six, given the subject matter. He who sits in hev- the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Right. So, so God who is high and lifted up, the Sovereign Lord, is being addressed there. But here in this third section, David uses the name Yahweh again. Why? Because he is telling of the decree or command of God... And this decree was communicated to David by way of covenant. I believe what David is doing here in Psalm 2 is reflecting upon the covenant that God transacted with him. Uh, That covenant has already been explained to you. All of this is based upon that covenant that was transacted with David um, beforehand. Two, when we read the words, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. We are to think of that covenant that God transacted with King David as recorded in 2 Samuel 7, which we have already read. For it was then that the Lord made this promise to David. The exact phrase, You are my son, today I have begotten you, is not found in Psalm 7, but the idea is there. This is clearly David's summary and interpretation of the promise that God made to him there in that covenant. So what did God say to David regarding sonship? So that David could say, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, listen to 2 Samuel 7, 12-14. There God made a promise to David, saying, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Do you hear it? So here in Psalm 2, David is reflecting upon all of this and and he brings it all together saying, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. This was what David was referring to when he uttered these words. And three, it is clear from Psalm 2 and also the New Testament that this promise was really about Jesus, David's greater son. This becomes clear when we pay careful attention to what David says here. Again, verse 7 I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. Listen to this. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And so let me ask you this, brothers and sisters, did King David or any of the other kings of old covenant Israel ever come to have the ends of the earth as their possession? Not even close. Even even in the days of, of Solomon, when the kingdom of Israel was at its high point, we could not say that Solomon had the ends of the earth as his possession. David, Solomon, any of the other kings that followed, 
them. They, they never experienced this. Neither did they ever judge the nations of the earth, breaking them with a rod of iron and dashing them in pieces like a potter's vessel. No, certainly this was not fulfilled in David and Solomon or any other king of old covenant Israel. Uh, it could only be fulfilled through Jesus the Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. Again, the New Testament makes this so very clear. I've cited Acts 13.33 numerous times now. But listen again to the preaching of the Apostle Paul. He said, among other things, This he has fulfilled by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So Paul connects the dots for us here. This was fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. And listen also to Hebrews 1.5. Here the author of Hebrews is establishing that Jesus Christ is superior to the angels. So he asks the rhetorical question, if you're, if you're fading right now, reconnect. This is marvelous. This is what the writer of the Hebrews says, Hebrews 1.5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Citing Psalm 2.7. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son, citing 2 Samuel 7.14. So this connection that I have made between Psalm 2 and the Davidic covenant, the terms of it being communicated in 2 Samuel 7.14, was not my idea, but it is rather the writer to the Hebrews who, who does this. He takes both of these passages and cites them together to show that these texts were not about angels or any other, but they were about Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, come in the flesh. He is the fulfillment of these promises. And Hebrews 5.5 does something similar with Psalm 2, saying, So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. Brothers and sisters, I, I do hope that you see this as marvelous. Here in Psalm 2, David is teaching us about the decree of God to give the nations to His Son as a heritage. The ends of the earth will be His possession. And notice what is taught here is that He will judge them. He will judge them. I do hope that you connect all the dots. Jesus the Christ is the Son of God who has the nations as His inheritance. The nations will be judged by Him at the end of time. Listen to Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 and following. These are the words of Jesus. When the Son of Man comes, He's speaking, to him as himself, uh, he's speaking of Himself as the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. These are the words of Christ. Christ will judge the nations at the end of, of time. And it is this judgment that is described in Psalm 2, 7 through 9. You know, we love to talk about Jesus as the Savior, don't we? And rightly so. He is that. He is the Savior. 
But did you know that He is also Jesus the Judge? Jesus the Judge. God will judge all people at the end of time, but He will do so through Christ. For it is Christ who has the nations given to Him as His inheritance. He is not only Savior, He is also the Judge. Indeed, He will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel on the day of judgment. But He is the Savior of all people too. And this is why He commissioned His disciples after He was raised, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He has the nations as His inheritance, and He will have the nations as His own either as Savior or as Judge. All will stand before Him. But not all will stand. Some will be dashed to pieces if they are not found in Him. So Jesus, the Son of David and the Son of God, will have the nations as as His inheritance, both in judgment and in salvation. And this is how our psalm concludes. With an appeal to the nations to pay homage to the Son, to take refuge in Him, so as to be saved in Him and not judged by Him. Listen to how David delivered the gospel call. Verse 10. Now therefore, he says, based upon all of this, based upon this truth, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. And I think we are to picture all the peoples of the earth included in this call. They are, they are, they are underneath the authority of their kings. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord, Yahweh, with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Finally, the Gospel. Finally, the Gospel. Here the kings of the earth and the people they represent are urged to cease from raging and plotting against the Lord and His anointed and to pay homage to Him instead. Be wise, be warned, David says. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I think this is a marvelous description of the fear of the Lord. It is not fear that produces terror, but fear that leads to rejoicing. Do you see it there in the text? And then he says, kiss the Son. In other words, honor Him, submit to His rule, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. That word, way, should remind us of the conclusion to Psalm 1. Wherein in verse 6 we read, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then finally, we hear, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And so friends, if you wish to be shielded from the wrath of the Son, we must be found in Him. We must be found in Him. At the judgment, there will be those who are in the Son. They are those who kissed Him, who paid homage to Him, who feared Him and rejoiced in Him. Stated differently, these are those who had faith in Him. They are in Him, but all others will stand outside of Him, and these will endure His wrath. There are no other options. You are either in the Son or you are not. You are either for Him or you are against Him. There is no other way. We must be found in Him. Blessed is the one who is found in Him. And so you see that Psalm 1 is law and Psalm 2 is gospel. 
Psalm 1 says, do this and live, but we all come short of it, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ did not fall short of it, though. He kept God's law and entered into glory. He is seated at the Father's right hand with all authority in heaven and earth given to Him. From there He will return to judge the world and to bring His redeemed into His eternal inheritance. And so are you in Him? Do you trust in Him? Do you honor Him? Do you serve Him? If you do, He is your refuge. If you do not, He is your judge. Psalm 2 is gospel because it announces that though we have broken God's law and have failed to meet its righteous demands, there is a Savior. He is the Anointed One of God. He is the Messiah, the Christ. Have you taken refuge in Him? That is the question that is being pressed here. And if you have, I ask you, are you confident in Him today? Are you confident in Him today? Yes, the nations rage. They always will. And yes, the people plot in vain. They always will. The world is eager to cast off the bonds of the Lord and His anointed. And they always will be. But where is the Lord, brothers and sisters? He is in heaven. He is the sovereign one. And though you and I are prone to grow deeply troubled at the turmoil we see in the world, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales before our God. Be found in Christ, dear friends, and be confident in the Lord, for He will surely accomplish all that He has decreed. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. We thank You that You have anointed Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. We are grateful that He has even now the nations as His inheritance. Lord, may we be found in Him. May we be confident in Him. May we walk by faith and not by sight until the Lord returns to make all things new. And how we long for that day. We long for that day where all will live in submission to Christ the King. Father, make us diligent to do the work that You have given us to do, to go and to make disciples of all nations, to baptize and to teach all that You have commanded. Lord, this is our mission. Make us diligent in it. May we pray often for the lost. May we be eager to witness to them concerning the sufferings of Christ, His death, burial, and His resurrection also, and His ascension to Your right hand. May we speak often of Christ and the victory that He has won, the fact that He is a refuge to those who believe upon Him. Lord, may this gospel of peace be on our lips always. And Father, we pray that it would go forth with power, that we would be blessed to see many come to faith in the Christ. It's in His name that we pray, and all of God's people say, Amen.